The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 35 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Stephen Platt may have drawn the cover of this issue, but my favorite Platt is still Oliver Platt and ready to rumble. I will rule you! I'm Adam. Still trying to figure out how to spend all of my Sideshow Rewards points I've earned buying... Some would say too many Hot Toys figures. <laughs> I'm Michael. And convinced there's a connection between UFOs and the rise of the Garb Seamus publishing empire in the 90s, I'm Steven. And back on the show tonight is a burly, leather-skinned warrior who has trod the paths of death and knows that a blade of a sword not soaked red with the blood of one's enemies is truly the sign of a wasted life. It's our resident Wolverine and Conan the Barbarian expert, Jeff the Destroyer. Welcome back to the show, Almighty One. What is best in life? To read your comics, see them bagged and boarded before you, and hear the speculation about the latest issue of Wizards Magazine in this podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Can I just say quickly, I met Oliver Platt once when I was like a nerdy teenager. I chased him down to get an autograph when he was promoting Bullworth on the Conan O'Brien show, and he was not <laughs> pleased that I was bothering him. <laughs> Just a quick Oliver Platt story. Who's on the cover here? Isn't that like uh, Shatterstar, isn't that? That is Prophet by Rob Liefeld, and we're going to get all into it, don't you worry. But he's wearing that boxer headgear, just like all of his characters. Oh. Yep. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I know, we got to catch you up at 94. All right, <laughs> now, uh, the wizard staff have stopped playing video games for the moment, and instead, they've decided to get fit. Yes, in this issue, it's announced that wizard editor Pat McCallum, entertainment retailer art director Robin Ramos, and re research assistant Dan Riley, quote, have signed their names to a semi-legal contract for a weight loss competition. Quote, the participant who loses the highest percentage of weight gets a free lunch at Taco Bell, courtesy of the weight loss runner-up. Isn't that counterintuitive, though? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not the wisest choice after you've just taken off the pounds. Seems backwards. <laughs> but come on, you, you need the reward when you're done. I guess so. While he who loses the least amount of weight has to work all of Friday, May 27th, dressed as a woman. Dress, wig, makeup, padded bra, the whole kit and caboodle. I, I, again, something that would not go over in 2021, wizard. <laughs> and with good reason. Yeah, and with good reason, absolutely, yes. Agreed. Heck, I, another layer of the onion for you, Michael. I used to dress as an old lady named Barb for fun on weekends until my wife made me stop. True story. <laughs> Her name was Barb Be Fabulous. She was very popular with 30 to 40-year-old women, especially my cousin, who hired me. She flew me out to New Jersey for her 40th birthday party to entertain the crowd as Barb. 
You know, you don't have to, you don't have to tell us everything. On yeah, I don't need to. Your, <laughs> yeah, your your whole life does not be on, need to be on display for this. <laughs> this There's some things you can keep secret. I'm not shocked. I'm a little scared, but not shocked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just my wife, not the fan. That's how that goes. I okay. I, I I can't imagine why she would not be a fan. <laughs> Can't for the life and wrap my head around where that she was like you know this seems like something that's a turn on to me but luckily i had another alter ego who was an 80s heavy metal rock and roller named mel zorro and she was all in on that and i credit mel zorro very much for our nuptials <laughs> mel zorro in person yes jeff is one of, one of those lucky few well speaking of weight you know who knows how many pounds of letters wizard was receiving on a monthly basis and so so it's time to open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. So the first letter is from Matthew W. Love of Stockton, California. He says, Dear Wizard, I was offended when in issue number 31's magic words, y'all at Wizard referred to us wonderful comic collectors as geeky. All my life, these damn stereotypes have been pissing me off. Who's to say someone is geeky? Certainly not you, me, or anybody in the free world. That would be like me saying, man, those guys over at Wizard are sure weird, always blasting out polka music and talking Scandinavian while drinking liquid nitrogen. I can't say that. For all I know, you could be the type of people who read Shakespeare and listen to Verdi. The only people who call others geeky are moronic and insecure. <laughs> wow. Our apologies to our listeners who we have called geeks from day one. <laughs> I mean, it fits. But, honestly, geeky then versus geeky now have very different connotations. Good and, point. and, you know, to be geeky nowadays is cool whereas back then it was taboo. So. Oh, it was, yeah. You were, you, you had a, a scarlet letter. Yeah, you, you were hanging your underwear on the locker, you know, kind of. Uh, <laughs> Salute your shorts. Yep. Uh, so the wizard response was, I, James Joseph McLaughlin, am a comic geek. I say it loud and proud. I consider it no insult. As far as I'm concerned, this means nothing more than I am a comic reader. I dig them. I like them. I look forward to them coming out every week. I'm also a basketball geek, a single malt scotch geek, and a Sunday newspaper geek. No big deal. You are right, however, in that blanket statements like this can often be wrong or sometimes hurtful. For instance, I couldn't poke it to save my life. I can really cut a rug doing a waltz or a foxtrot, though. And you ought to see me bunny hop. But who's Verdi? <laughs> so moving on to the next letter, it's from John... Uh, I want to say Stinky. <laughs> Stinky. It's not John Stinky? All right, John Stinky of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He says, Dear Wizard, I have a three-company crossover story idea to share. It's called The Image Wars. The story starts with Thanos using the Infinity Gems to travel to the Image Universe, where he finds that every hero looks like Cable or Wolverine. All women have large breasts and impossibly tiny ankles, and most villains look like Strife. Not liking what he sees, Thanos travels to the DC Universe and enlists the help of the Spectre. They both go back to the Image Universe so the Spectre can pass judgment on the Image Creators. All the image heroes and villains gather together to save their creators, and thousands of speculators left from the Valiant Wars join the Image Army to save their collections. Okay. As the Image Army moves closer, Thanos brings forth Peter David to write every image title. Faced with the horror of having to be 
in well-written stories and having to do more than pose for splash pages and fight, the image army surrenders. Thanos then polybags the remaining speculators with a Wetworks foil trading card and puts them <laughs> in an acid-free box until they're worth something. The Spectre passes judgment on all the image creators and tells them this. You claim that you don't want to be Marvel, but you have become the best and worst of Marvel. He then forces them to take back every late book, including all 180,000 copies of Deathmate Red. They are also forbidden from soliciting any books that are not finished or that they probably didn't start. And finally, he places them in exile until they can find a copy of Wetworks, number one. (laughs) Not a bad idea. I mean, he's got some good points. It's high concept. (laughs) The strength thing really landed for me. Absolutely, man. Yeah, just poor image. And yet, not poor image. Very rich image, despite all the hate. Yeah. You know, this kind of reminds me about how all entertainment is now. Like, the Space Jam trailer has every Warner Brothers character that ever existed (laughs) playing basketball. So maybe this would work. I don't know. Nowadays, it probably would. So finally here, uh, we actually have a letter from a reader of Wizard Magazine in Russia. International, guys. Uh, we actually, we found him online. We asked him to read the letter himself. So please welcome to the show, Boris Mixapixlovsky. Hello. I, a year ago last, come to U.S. from Soviet Union. I too discover comic books. Wizard also. Hope am I to be serious, rather, to books. So think I wizard for to be best employment first. Write reviews to books what I will. Also, I give valuation personal. Example this, number 75, Superman. Here, big story end. The Superman, he killed Cossack, Doomsday, but also killed by him too? Point to story what? Many pages for artists to paint a big fight. Conversation there is little, but worry not. Superman, he to return soon. In multiple men? Yes. Look not for the thinking deep, nor this book, but slugfest much. Hey, image book this? Rate B minus. Yes, shorter review, but expand I can. Need new writer, you do. I'm myself much known in Soviet Union. Appeal I am to new Soviet readers. Of books new to US also. I to use new hip hop language and readers young to relate good. If soon to employ me, not be unhappy you. You need a resume, yes? Sorry, not one I have, but not expensive to be paying wages to, am I? Work I very hard for little money. I hope soon you reply. Honestly, Boris Mikselpizolovsky, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> Adam just started Cold War Two. <laughs> Said Wizard's response, really, folks? People send this stuff in. <laughs> oh, the wizard readers, they're trying to get in on the act. They think they're funny. I gotta admit, that's funny. For the time period. <laughs> okay. I know, Stephen's like, well... Whatever. <laughs> I don't have a Greek impersonation to offend you, I apologize. Just do Balky. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically Greek. <laughs> or, or my grandma would be like, you ever see that big fat Greek wedding? That's a good picture. That's a good picture. I he like likes that the Windex. Picture. He puts the Windex on everything. My, my, my grandpa had the best review of my big fat Greek wedding because everyone was seeing it and he didn't want to see it. And he said, I saw Zorba. Same shit. That is so. There you go. (laughs) Well, and speaking of war there, Michael, it's time to get to the headlines with Wizard News. 
as you all know, I go into this completely blind, and I don't look at anything till I get here, so it's always good. So our top story for the second month in a row is DC's Zero Hour event. It's about to hit Stan. This time, it's a page two bombshell with the news that... Acclaim, the video game company known for making terrible games based on hit movies, has purchased Valiant Comics for $65 million. Wow. Cha-ching. I no wonder why they went under and then well, came back years later. $1994, guys. Yeah, that's probably about, you know, I'd say 120 now, give or take. Uh, what did they see that we didn't see? I don't know. Solar Men of the Atom? <laughs> <laughs> According to a claim, they will be keeping the current Valiant executives on as employees to run the comics branch of their entertainment empire, with the exception of Kevin Van Hook, who has left to pursue a career as a Hollywood screenwriter, which he apparently failed at because he ended up working in special effects on Xena and Hercules, the TV shows that were on in the 90s, and the 2003 Daredevil movie, which everybody dumps on. I actually like a lot of it. Director's Cut is great. His record cut is great. What do you know? (laughs) Terrible, terrible movie. He also was involved in Will Smith's iRobot, which is, again, an interesting movie. Certain things I don't like about it, but there are certain things that are pretty good, and the VFX are enjoyable for the most part. And numerous television series up until the present day, with only a handful of writer and director credits on no-name films. Well, listen, I mean, he's at least doing VFX and a ton of well-known stuff. That's kind of cool. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He, he's got these big projects, but so few of them were the writing. And that's what he was doing in addition to some other things at Valiant. So, yeah, it's so funny that he now is uh, the only one not to jump over with a claim. Maybe he saw the writing on the wall ahead of the rest of them. He's like, I'm going to Hollywood, boys. I guess so. But speaking of a claim, I do have to mention, we have an upcoming interview on the Wizard Files with Greg Orlando, a former Wizard staffer. And before he worked for Wizard, he worked for Acclaim as a game tester. And he had to test their terrible games, and he just talks about how he had to give so many notes. He's like, these are bad games you're making. And they're like, we don't care. But he would give it like these giant notes, like, fix this, fix this, no. <laughs> People will pay money, you know, if they get the right marketing, who knows. In further Valiant Comics news, we finally get an answer as to why Star Watchers changed its name to Psy Lords, as reported several times over the last few episodes. Apparently, famous French comics artist Mobius already had the character called Star Watcher, and while there was no legal action threatened, Valiant decided to change the name out of respect. Or out of fear, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) That was a claims deal. They're like, hey, wait, 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 you guys got anything we're going to get sued for when we buy you out? Yeah, that's Psy Lords now. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of changes, it's announced that Joe Duffy will be leaving Catwoman with Zero Hour issue number zero to focus on her self-published comic nest robber jim Ballant will stay on as artist i actually have that zero hour issue i think i have a zero book hmm. and hopefully we're going to talk about it soon when we get to zero hour i'm excited so. john byrne is canceling his creator own fantastic four homage danger unlimited due to low sales are we surprised probably not <laughs> 
Byrne actually wrote an inflammatory letter in Wizards industry trade magazine Entertainment Retailer complaining about comic book stores sabotaging his book by under-ordering, which caused many owners to write in and label the legendary creator as a crybaby because his book simply didn't sell. Byrne will instead focus on a new miniseries called Babe, not the pig, probably, (laughs) which promises to not be related to She-Hulk, even though it's about a female superhero. Adam has a full run on Babe, which doesn't surprise me, and we'll review it in an upcoming (laughs) mini-episode. Yes, indeed! (laughs) Oh, boy. Let me ask you this question. Did you buy Babe at the time, or did you buy it, you know, posthumously? No, I wanted to buy Babe at the time, but I didn't want... I mean, I was buying Gen 13, but for some reason, like, the first issue of Babe, she's like, you know, the Venus and the clamshell or whatever that famous Renaissance art is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, th- th- that's his homage. It was this naked woman on the cover. I was like, I'm not going to buy this. <laughs> I'll, I'll wait until, you know, 25 years later, and then I'll pick it up. Mom won't approve if I bring yeah. this home. <laughs> Famed auction at house Sotheby's. It's auctioning off reproductions of lost Silver Age Marvel Comics covers by the original artist. So basically, John Romita Sr., Jack Kirby, Dick Ayers are all redrawing classic covers like, you know, Amazing Spider-Man number 50, and then get to keep the money since this is the closest anyone will ever get to owning the original art. They are expected, or they were expected, to earn somewhere between $2,000 and $5,000 a piece. Now, I'm curious for you, Jeff, real quick. Do you have any original art? Is that anything you've ever pursued in your collecting? Only my own. (laughs) Okay, what mention of Rob Liefeld is this? But here we go. Rob Liefeld's team-based book, Bloodstrike. How many team-based books does this guy have exactly. that, are, that are all the same? Is getting a major overhaul as the creator of the failed Q unit will be taking over the book with issue 25, where Bloodstrike will become a loaned masked av- adventurer instead of an entire team of characters. I don't know. I don't even know how to... <laughs> Adam, of course, had to see this for himself, so he bought the issue. Of course. Why would not? Why would you not buy the issue? What do you think of this, Adam? I mean, it, it was intriguing enough. Like, here's what I'll say about Rob Liefeld. You cannot, for ideas and concepts and promises, he's like, look, I'm getting rid of the team that was just generic. You know, it looks like, you know, Cable is leading another team. And now I have Brigade and I have Bloodstrike and I have all these team books. And I was just like, you're, you're going to literally just erase everything you did and start it over as if he was a solo character. You know, and so I'm just like... Okay, you pulled me in Rob Liefeld because I already purged everything after he blocked us. You know, I got rid of every Rob Liefeld comic <laughs> except for the X-Force number one that I took a bite out of. That's not his modus operandi. His modus operandi is to keep the artwork, scrap the text, and then just add new dialogue change the story but yeah so this book is just it is bizarre because it is is such a generic action hero type guy and he kind of has stolen his own poses and just did, done it over and over again that famous Liefeld hey the character is jumping at the reader with weapons outstretched claws or something but his feet are super tiny behind him and one giant thigh and it's just like I've, you've seen 
all of this before and it's just fascinating the only thing that i give him props for because he's literally just following his own formula and having a wisecracking deadpool style character although liefeld claims deadpool was not as much of a wisecracker when he first created him but in the letters section they have all fake letters written by people like Jeffrey Dahmer, but spelled differently. Vanilla Icicle, Daniel Glover instead of Danny Glover, McLean Culkin, Frederick Kruger, Percy Brosnan. You know, just like all these terrible, terrible names that are jokes, and they're commenting as if they're their famous characters, you know? Uh, but it's just, they're talking about, I loved when you did this with Bloodstrike back in the day, and it's all like self referential kind of like the amalgam comics like as if it existed for all these 25 issues so i thought that was very clever but but after reading this i wouldn't really want to go back and read anymore because i'm just like literally liefeld nothing new except that the old name is being applied to one person now so i think it is a fun anomaly it, he even stole all new all different like the new giant size x-men you know back in the day he puts that on it all new all different blood strike so yeah i mean it was a wild experiment it and he's got the guts but maybe not the talent i don't know i mean i don't know i don't want to dig deeper into the rob liefeld universe other than the fact you got young blood blood strike that other one you mentioned i forget what it's called already but they're all like pick a lane man uh, you know pick one and run with it uh, i have some i have some breaking news real quick oh yes dave batista quit guardians of the galaxy over the fact that he has to have too many shirtless scenes as drax what <laughs> yeah shirtless drax scenes are a big reason why dave batista is retiring from the mcu and is quitting guardians of the galaxy over shirtless scenes okay. he's been making a lot of strange comments lately very anti-james gunn it seems that was the final straw can i just wear a shirt no <laughs> wow i guess you'll have to catch him in army of the dead then yeah <laughs> can i just say i like i could kind of care less about gardens of the galaxy volume three at this point i, I kind of wish they i kind of wish they'd just shelve it by now i, was I mean the, for a good soundtrack though the, the first <laughs> one was great the second one was okay I, I just i feel like they did their thing and they you know mm -hmm. by the end of end game kind of sewed up all the things they needed to sew up we'll see anyway that's our breaking news right now I just had wow to broken right here that is the wizard news for this issue but Adam, what do we have in our table of contents? All right. Well, this time around, we actually have two different covers, okay? We have the direct market edition that went to comic stores, which featured Rob Liefeld's profit speaking of rob but as drawn by the white hot artist who rules the top 10 comics list whether it's moon knight or profit or whatever he's drawing the one and only stephen platt uh, meanwhile the newsstand edition was a painted wolverine cover by mark texera so they figured obviously that would have more mass market appeal because who knows who profit is nobody uh, I remember Mark Teixeira in Wolverine 66 drew Wolverine as Clint Eastwood from Good, Bad, and the Ugly through the entire issue. But he's the guy that started the covers where the upper bodies were like five times larger than the lower bodies. Oh, that was his look. That's, that's what this cover is, too. If you look at it, like Wolverine is charging the reader and he's just like jacked up top. And yeah. So according to the Wizard Big Book of Covers about this Wolverine cover, they say the Fleer trade 
trading card company, a subsidiary of Marvel, produced an extremely popular line of Marvel characters-based cards called Fleer Flare, which used computer coloring to paint over existing inked artwork. In fact, Marvel still uses that style to color the covers to Ultimate Spider-Man. This cover, also used as a tra- as trading card art, originally appeared as inked art on the cover to Wolverine 67. So this is like the second or third reuse of this image. So I, I just think that's fascinating. It's just like, we love it so much. Just use it again. Use it again. Give it to him. That Wolverine one. Yeah, you know the one. The one with the two foot long claws that would never fit in his arm. <laughs> yes. But getting back to Stephen Platt here. Now, the first feature article is titled Profit Margin. Ah? And it outlines the plans for the Profit comic going forward now that Platt has taken over art chores uh, from the Rob Liefeld protege Dan Panosian. We also get a quick origin story for Platt. It's very interesting. He said he was basically pushed into showing his art to comics publishers because friends in college kept saying his art style fit that medium more than the advertising career he was pursuing doing quote if nothing else it would shut them all up sounds like a real nice guy um (laughs) anyway platt got a job drawing a marvel comics Presents story starring moon knight but he never finished it because of his academic responsibilities and then later on an editor found the pages and offered him a job on the final issues of moon knight which is what led to platt having his 15 minutes of comics fame here so it's just that's a really interesting go around there i didn't really want to be there in the first place then i did this thing i didn't finish and then i'm still a superstar (laughs) he was destined to be on the top 10 list guys no comment (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I don't know i I was trying to come up with a clever joke but i i had nothing at the moment (laughs) michael and i keep getting comments online that were negative about stuff so now i think we're trying to just be positive i I, i'm trying to be open-minded and more uh what's the word uh accepting of things that don't make sense 30 years later there you go yeah. Now, uh, I have myself been harsh on the profit concept in the past based on the early issues that Liefeld himself was drawing. But this is an article that gave me kind of a new perspective. And Jeff, I know you're not familiar at all with this profit character, right? You thought it was... Shatterstar. <laughs> He's probably more familiar with it than I am. Because I, I could care less. I don't know who this character is. But I'm trying to just be... Here's the thing. This is my thought, okay? It's my only thought I have. So, and, and it's totally contrary to what I just said. Like, the character's name is Prophet. A prophet tends to bring some sort of religious thing, you know. And this book is stacked with religious commentary and Bible quotes, just so you know. Oh, is it? Is it really? Yeah, yeah, because oh. Liefeld's dad is a pastor, mm. and so he grew up very religious, and so this is like, he just injects all of his stuff he knows about the end of days and all this kind of stuff into miniseries and all these things about Prophet, so it's very much Bible-based. But why does Prophet look like a machine-gun-toting murderer? He's also <laughs> that, because here's the thing, Liefeld reveals in this article, he said, he created Prophet while at Marvel as a character going back in time to kill Cable, but then he pulled him for later creator-owned projects, he knew he was going that direction. He's like, that's oh, too cool for Marvel. So then Liefeld and Platt, as they've kind of expanded it, they explain that John Prophet is a super soldier created by a scientist who unlocked the perfect human DNA during World War II, resulting in this like seven foot dude. And then 
and Prophet was frozen and woken up to perform missions intermittently for the highest bidder over the last 50 years. He's the Winter Soldier. Yeah, did Liefeld invent the Winter Soldier concept and Ed Brubaker stole it from him? Or is there another literary figure, Jeff, maybe you know this, with this type of backstory? Uh, there's the Russian Omega Red. Is that his thing is he was always frozen and woken up for assignments and then put back to sleep? Yeah, he was he was frozen in a, and then he was brought awake to assassinate people and then put back to sleep. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Rob, we gave you the benefit of the doubt there, but nope, not quite. Now, this is what I found so funny, though, is Platt seems to be very interested in using his own ideas in the storytelling, to which Liefeld responds, quote, Steven's got a lot of ideas. Some of them are great. Not all of them fit really well into the Image universe, though. Translation, stick to the art, new guy. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like that was not going to happen. But there is a profit contest in this issue associated with the cover where the grand prize winner can receive an original sketch of profit by Stephen Platt. And the way that they do this is by counting up all the spent bullet casings or shells that are uh, littering the cover art. Let me read here real quick what Wizard had to say about this contest and getting it set up. So, still enamored with the Count the Cats contest idea that almost ran with Wizard number 33's Catwoman cover, we applied it to this cover with a count the shell casing spin. When we contacted artist Stephen Platt to see how many he had drawn into the piece, his delayed answer was a simple, dude. <laughs> After a dozen tries with a dozen different answers, we stopped counting and the contest never ran. They say that, but it ran. So I don't know if they just, they forgot that it ran here because it's, it's right here. <laughs> it's in the pages. They just ignored anybody that wrote in with the answer. Exactly. They're like, what? Nope. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> So anyway, uh, yeah, so there you go. Are you guys intrigued at all knowing, though, that this sort of predated the Winter Soldier, but not Omega Red? Uh, <laughs> you know, just when you think that Rob Liefeld did something original. So close, right? <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Look, he kind of looks cool. I'll give Prophet that. Um, it never interested me, but I don't know. It's hard not to say anything negative now. I'm trying not to be negative this <laughs> yeah, episode. I like this. I like the game you have to play. The tiptoeing, the eggshells. <sighs> but it doesn't, it doesn't feel natural, though. I'm trying to be good because I've been told that I have too much Aid to this stuff. <laughs> And I don't know. Can't love it all. But this next one, hey, I think that somebody in the family is going to love because <laughs> this one is called The Weapon X Files. Yes, obviously a play on the title of the Hitbox TV series of which Steven's wife, Annie Flowers, is a super fan. Maybe get her interested in Wolverine this way. Steven, just be like, hey, Weapon X Files, huh? I think, I think just Hugh Jackman with his shirt off was the biggest uh, hook for her and Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I hear I hear a lot about the X-Files in my house. It's a great show. Now, this, though, is a chronological exploration of the life of Wolverine, as presented in all his comics appearances, according to the writer Gary St. Lawrence. Now, because at this time, various writers had made contributions to this mystery of Logan's origin, if that was his real name, there were some contradictions. So, some of the stories, like, have the man who would be Wolverine, remembering a childhood spent being raised by wolves, and Barry Windsor's 
Smith laid out the Weapon X program that gave him adamantium-laced claws, and that was like set in 1964. That was in Marvel Comics Presents, I believe. And then still other stories find Logan alive in the 1800s, and then famously teaming up later with Captain America and Black Widow during World War II. That was a story drawn by Jim Lee. So this is one of the many reasons we brought Jeff onto this episode, because as we've established in past appearances, he stopped reading comics around this era after Wolverine had his adamantium removed, but he has a complete library of Wolverine appearances up to this point in time, which he uses as a reference to track the character's progression. So, you know, Jeff is definitely the perfect person to ask, what is the most likely origin for the character based on the evidence available at this time? And then what could just be explained away as false memories? Like, as you've read through this article, how close does it get to being accurate in your expert opinion? Uh, Well, there's a few factual problems here, but for the most part, I agree with Gary St. Lawrence. In fact, I'd like to read his opening blurb here. It says, okay, we know that Wolverine is the best there is at what he does. What we don't know is how long he's been doing what he is the best there is at. And don't look for any answers from his publisher, Mighty Marvel Comics. It's going to great lengths to convolute Wolverine's past, regardless of what has or hasn't been firmly established to date. And that's absolutely correct. They muddied the waters big time. He talks about during his first initial appearances in Incredible Hulk 180 through 182, he says, not only did we not know if he was a hero or a villain, but there was absolutely no mention of the M word to indicate Wolverine's place among the mutants. And, uh, you know, if he'd have maybe read that issue a little better, he would have found out right here in issue 181, it says, and I quote, the government has spent a great deal of time, effort, and money developing that mutant's natural born speed, strength, and savagery into the skills of a professional warrior. And despite the few kinks still remaining in his psychological makeup, I think we've done a pretty good job. So right there, it says that he was a mutant in his debut appearance. But for the most part, I really agree with what he has to say that, hey, this is what we were shown before. And now you're just coming up with a convenient way to change things or to not do the research. Part of the reason they did that is because it was not a single creator anymore. It was not Chris Claremont writing the story. It was now many different people. You know, Chris Claremont, after he left the Uncanny X-Men, after he left the new Atchetivalist X-Men, and then he did the first 10 issues of Marvel Comics Presents, and he did the first 10 issues of Wolverine, Volume 2. After that, it was different writers, and they all had these contributions that changed everything. And uh, one of those was Larry Hama. And Larry Hama, don't get me wrong, I love the guy. He was great doing G.I. Joe, all the backgrounds for those characters and everything was great. When he had his own free will, he could do whatever he wanted with the characters. But when you have an established character, it would be nice if you could, you know, kind of go in line with that. But that's not what he says. Larry Hama basically says that he picked the things that he liked and he just changed anything he didn't. And he thought that that was his prerogative since he was on the book now. That created a whole lot of problems. In this article, it does talk about several different things. In Alpha Flight number 33, back from, I think it's 1986. He's talking to Heather Hudson. She says to him... He's got the books right there, guys. The books are literally right next to him. Let's see. You told me you'd been wounded before, Logan. Sure, in the war. It was with the Devil's Brigade. And later, when I went freelance, I always held fast. I thought it was some gift I had. I didn't learn for a while that I was a mutant. So right there, back in 1986, we learned that first, he was in the Devil's Brigade in World War II. And second, that he was a freelance intelligence operative after World War II. And so that's an established fact. And then in that same book, we find out uh, all about how the Hudsons found him as a wild man after the Weapon X project had given him the adamantium 
skeleton and claws, and he was roaming the, the wilderness of Wooden Buffalo National Park, which is where Heather Hudson and James McDonald Hudson found him while they were on their honeymoon. But if we look at Wolverine number 34, which is written by Larry Hama, and don't get me wrong, I, some of my favorite Wolverine books in the second volume was Larry Hama and Mark Silvestri from like 31, clear to like 37. But 34 is a wonderful standout issue, a standalone story. I love it, but it's just got all kinds of factual problems. He's talking about the first Canadian parachute battalion that that Wolverine was involved in. He was involved with the Devil's Brigade. So you got some problems there. See, Jeff, this is how I feel. If only Larry Hama and all the other writers back in the day had your phone number, all they had to do was call. <laughs> Jeff could just fill you in. Like, guys, nope, I'm going to give you some notes. Uh, set them through on the old fax machine here. Just try to help you out. It's funny because like in the Alpha Flight book, it says the only thing that he doesn't remember, he remembers all of his past, all of his past. The only thing he doesn't remember is who did it to him, who gave him the adamantium and how he got away. That's the only thing he doesn't remember. So like the, the coolest trauma. part, that's the part that's the mystery. Yeah. But Larry Hama introduced, you know, in the first page of this uh, issue number 34, he says, nothing cleanses the soul like getting back to your roots, especially my roots, mainly because I can't remember half of them. So he's trying to introduce this amnesia that he doesn't remember his history, but he just told Heather Hudson that he was in the war, that he did this, that he did that. He remembers his history, so you've got a contradiction there. Jeff, you should really call Marvel and just retcon all of their That's what mistakes. I'm saying. I know, like, right? Yeah, and what I think it comes down to a lot of times, too, is that a character is so popular that really you just know that it's going to sell regardless. You know, to this point, he's coming up on a 20-year history, and then you have another character coming up here, Jeff, in the next article here, which is called Dark Knights, and that is Batman, who has had many stories and interpretations over his 60 years at this point of Batman now. And what I find interesting about this is this article is the is talking to the creative team behind the Nightfall saga about Night's End, which is bringing that saga of Jean-Paul Valley, aka Azrael, you know, his reign as the Batman to a close. So the question I have for you, Michael, I know you said on a, a recent episode that you kind of jumped off in the middle of everything that was going on uh, with the Nightfall saga and all of that. So for you, did you jump back on at the end, like to catch up? Or how did you uh, experience this? So, yeah, I, I got kind of sick of the Azrael stuff. And I only bought a handful of the issues until I was like, this is not what I was hoping for. Then I just thought, I'm going to just wait until Bruce Wayne comes back. And there's this ad that shows up in I think it was Wizard, it may have been in Hero Illustrated for all I know, and it's a picture of like Batman in the costume saying, he's coming back, or something like that and that's when I came back on, is basically when Bruce Wayne comes back and overtakes Azrael as Batman. And Jeff, did you ever have any connection to Batman in your reading? Did you pick up those issues, or were you mainly Marvel? I was mainly Marvel. Batman was my favorite DC character. I did have a smattering of, you know, just a handful of Batman comics, detective comics. My favorites were uh, The Untold Legend of Batman with those great yeah. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez covers with the John Byrne artwork inside by Len Wein. Yeah, definitely. Those were great. So, now, what was going on here is that Denny O'Neill obviously this caretaker of Batman. A while back when we started talking about Nightfall and Wizard, I said, Denny O'Neill said that Asriel was meant as like a criticism of the current trends in comics, and it turns out it came from this article. So at various points, O'Neill says of the criticism of the new Batman, quote, do they think we're not aware that he's too violent? One of our fears at the beginning is that people would love Jean-Paul. He's like a lot of other companies' characters that don't reflect my idea of what a hero should be because there's a wanton taking of 
of life. It's an easy out to give them a gun and let them kill. It's a cop-out. I could be awfully cynical about the readership. I'm glad to see they're not the kill-crazy maniacs we thought they might be. <laughs> so yeah, Danny O'Neill's kind of seeing the trends and be like, yeah, we're gonna put a spotlight on that, see what you guys think. Wasn't there like a transitional period here where Dick Grayson was Batman? Dick Grayson became Batman. There, there is an issue or two, and I have it somewhere, where ponytailed Dick Grayson does don the Batman costume. It's been so long ago since I read it, but yes, that, there's an image of him in a bat suit with a ponytail. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's quite it's quite a look. It's a good look. And, and, and you know, it's Tom Grummet doing the art, and he's one of my favorite Batman artists. Well, it, it's interesting because you mentioned that, Stephen, and O'Neill himself says that the storyline went on about three months too long based on the reader reactions. But he actually said that he felt that because he was able to work in some Nightwing stuff in there and get Dick Grayson involved as a result, that it kind of justified that but he also said quote if superman had stayed dead as long as bruce wayne had remained ors de combat mike would have had problems too speaking of superman editor mike carlin who he clarifies neither of them knew about each other's storyline so the idea of superman dies batman gets his back broken hal jordan goes crazy like all of that was just kind of independently happening and then just happened to line up together like nobody at dc like at the top was paying attention to how they were laying it out so this is what happens when you don't have the internet or email yeah (laughs) people say faxes (laughs) now i've also mentioned what i found interesting is they talk again about the batman punisher crossovers that are being put out one by dc one by marvel and the first one is we've talked about recently frank castle teaming up with Azrael as batman but then in the second story from marvel lake of fire castle is meeting bruce wayne as batman he's back now for the first time but he thinks it's Azrael. so there actually is like a continuity between the books they explain which i find fascinating and what you would think would just be one-shot publicity books but they're saying no there's a little bit of a punisher batman universe there the good news is michael found that lake of fire marvel book there with art by uh, john romita jr so he's going to be reviewing that second installment at some point on a mini episode so stay tuned for that Yes, so it's it's in my list of things I have to read for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the next article here is called Career Moves, and it's an interview with George Perez about his 20-year career at this point as a fan-favorite artist on Avengers and New Teen Titans and so much more. Uh, Interestingly, this interview is being conducted by the slowly disappearing into the mist wizard editor Patrick Daniel O'Neill, who reveals that he was the first to publish Perez's artwork in his fanzine that he was putting out in 1971 when George Perez was just 17 years old. So that's just a really interesting little factoid there. But I'm so curious, what's everyone's level of familiarity and fandom with George Perez? Because he's like that legendary name, but he's a little bit more, I feel like, in Jeff's era, which was just a few years before we started reading heavily in our youth. And then he was kind of still doing stuff, but he wasn't like the super superstar. So what, what about for you, Stephen? Is George Perez a big name for you? You know, I would say that, you know, my late teens, early 20s, I became more aware of who George Perez was when I kind of went back 
and like read some of the old Teen Titans comics. Uh, I had a few of them as a kid, but that's when I really started to know who he was. And, you know, now through like he was on Comic Book Men. So like they've really kind of I think, you know, the legend of his has grown through the years. Yeah. How about you, Jeff? Like I was saying there, there was definitely a lot going on as you were picking up X-Men off spinner racks and stuff. But did you ever pick up George Perez work? Yeah, I picked up George Perez did King Size X-Men number three, which is the third annual. The first annual would have been Giant Size X-Men number one and two. George Perez did the artwork for King Size Annual Number 3 for the X-Men. He's also the guy that did, he invented the Taskmaster on uh, the cover of Avengers 195. Oh, cool. So he's he invented that look. Um, and then, of course, the New Teen Titans. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what about for you, Michael? George Perez, you're our DC guy here. He, he has his share of work at Marvel and DC that we're going to get into. But is he big for you in your collection? Uh, it, it depends. So obviously, you know, everyone talks about Crisis on Infinite Earths and the mastery of being able to draw all those pages and the whole thing and yeah. yada, yada. But honestly, what I really enjoyed him is with New 52, he did the world's finest book with Huntress and Power Girl, which are basically the Earth 2 Helena Wayne and Earth 2 Kara Zorel and how they come to this Earth. And it's a great story. He did a lot of the art for a lot of those issues. And it's one of my favorite runs of all the New 52 is that. But also, obviously, like, you know, you have all the Titan stuff and so on and so forth. I mean, I've read a lot of his stuff through the years, but most DC stuff, very few Marvel stuff on his end. Okay. So, Steven, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more about what they're talking to Perez about? So, while Perez is about to draw Ultra Force from Malibu, Wizard is mostly interested in that failed JLA Avengers crossover of the 80s and even publishes some pencils from the unfinished pages of Batman and Captain America battling. To Perez's memory, he was unknowingly told by his editor to start drawing pages from a plot that had not been approved by Jim Shooter at Marvel, who did not approve the plot as it was conceived and asked for many revisions, which Perez thinks was motivated by Jim being treated poorly by DC during his last stint with the publisher that gave him a break. Calling it a gigantic pissing contest that saw the project being canceled, Perez was so mad at Shooter, who he blamed for the cancellation, that he signed an exclusive contract with DC to prevent himself from being able to do any work for Marvel at all. Wizard asked for Jim Shooter's take in a sidebar interview, and he states, George is very much misinformed. I had no vendetta against DC. I was the one who reinstated crossovers along with DC president and publisher Jeanette Kahn. Why would I sabotage them? I insisted on corrections and a revised plot. Marvel backed my position to the point that they let the project die, taking perhaps several hundred thousand dollars off of our bottom line. They would not have allowed such an event to occur over some personal vendetta of mine, I assure you. Uh, Both Perez and Shooter clarify that they are on good terms now and patched up their differences years ago. Perez also admits to overextending himself when he su- when he agreed to do both the Infinity Gauntlet and War of the Gods at DC simultaneously in 1991. Who knew that? That's crazy. And I, I will mention here, just real quick, speaking of War of the Gods, so I didn't weigh in on Perez because for me, like I was collecting New Teen Titans back in the day when I was going through back issue bins. That was a big title for me. But War of the Gods was my first, I'm going to go week after week to the comic book store. That was like my very early days of collecting and that was like my first big crossover event of like look at all the characters and then they do other books in their own titles and they're tied into the main story and all this stuff so like war of the gods i think is mostly forgotten by the majority of people but for me it was like this big big event yeah so he ended up doing 
only a few issues of each miniseries and had to have other artists finish the events for him. War of the Gods was supposed to be a story for Wonder Woman's 50th anniversary that got shelved for a year and then suddenly became a company-wide crossover event. Regarding Infinity Gauntlet, Perez admits that he thought the story was worth maybe two issues, but it just got repetitive in the heroes battling and losing to Thanos. Until they didn't. Yeah, so I mean, that's one of those things where it's just like, wow, okay, he he is famous for overstretching himself, I think, and yet his work does speak for itself for a lot of people you just say george perez you know what you go to i will mention i also picked up a lot of wonder woman his wonder woman title back in the day where mm-hmm. again these issues where it was just like you would see the covers you would just be like wow what is going on here this is so dramatic and i saw recently you know, i don't go into the comic book stores looking at the new release racks but he did his first issue of wonder woman got re-released by dc recently i'm sure you've probably seen that on the shelves there michael when you visit well what they did was with the wonder woman's 80th anniversary they did like 12 different covers of all different eras and they also released a, a handful of like number ones and original reprints type of things and they, they were just littered on the shelves for a couple of weeks you saw everywhere Uh, okay that makes sense then but obviously he was trying to take her back to a more like mythical era and that was his focus but speaking of these uh, ancient times and warriors and so on we're ready to be schooled briefly by jeff again here as this article called a new hyborian age which means something to some and others it is a total huh what is that but it is an interview with longtime marvel conan writer roy thomas and artist Raphael cayenne about the new Conan the Adventurer comic, which explores the Barbarian's teenage years, which was part of a synergistic marketing plan with this cartoon series of the same name that had come out. And the the premise is the same, basically, but these illustrated stories are promised to be much more adult in nature and kind of go to the the standard Conan fair everybody's expected. But I'm just curious, Conan the Barbarian, okay? Like, what is everybody's familiarity with Conan? Did you read the books? Or you just know the movie? Did you ever read the comics? Does reading Gru the Wanderer count for Steven? Um, <laughs> Michael, <laughs> big Conan fan, yay or nay? Uh, I can say that I've seen the movies. I can say that I do not own a Conan comic book, though I did one time get like a Cull the Conqueror book thinking they were the same thing as a kid. <laughs> That's about as far as I go with the comics in regard to, to Conan. How about you, Steven? Did reading Grew inspire you to get to know more about Conan? No, not at all. The only thing I remember is I saw my family watching the movie on WPIX, and I thought it was a He-Man movie. And I was like, oh, is this is this a He-Man movie? Like, is that She-Ra? Like, what's going on here? But no, I, I've never read an issue. I recently picked up an issue of Savage Sword of Conan from the dollar bin at my comic book store but no i've actually never even seen the movies yeah that that's similar for me like i've seen like a few minutes of you know conan the barbarian conan the destroyer just in passing on tv i own red sonia on vhs and i've started watching it this week and i'm like wow this is not good but ernie reyes jr is in it so that's fun and then on my birthday you know i was wandering around and going to all the thrift stores antique stores and i managed to pick up a copy of savage sword of conan number 59 from 1980 
So that was kind of fun to read through one of these vintage magazines and some pretty interesting stories there, but I definitely have never gotten deep into it other than, you know, seeing the Conan stage show at Universal Studios as a kid. <laughs> Laser eyes shooting out of this uh, serpent's serpent statue. That was always cool. But Jeff, obviously you uh, are quite a fan. Can you clarify for us how you discovered Conan and what you think of his interpretation in this media? Because obviously you have the books, yes? Yeah, my dad got me the Lancer paperback books with the Frank Frazetta covers when I was a kid and I dove right in. You know, that was the only Conan that was available at the time. You know, Robert E. Howard only wrote a handful of books about Conan. Actually, he didn't write any books at all. He wrote 17 short stories. One of those could be considered novel length and four after that were published posthumously and then he had five that were just notes and fragments and kind of story synopsis. But this is a character that comes from the pulp magazines. He was writing this back from the 1930s, 1932 to 1936. You know, we're talking about Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, Zorro, The Shadow, Doc Savage. That's where Conan came from is the pulps. And Howard's original writing was available in the 30s, but then it wasn't available again until almost the 2000s. Which is crazy, yeah. Yeah, so what happened was when he he had actually committed suicide on June 11, 1936, and it talks about that in this article, but he, once he was gone, executors of his estate, his literary agent and things like that, kind of took care of his stories. And a guy named Elspreg de Camp kind of took charge and he was the one that kind of pushed new books. And in doing so, he decided to edit the Conan stories and add some of his own because it was written in the 30s. Some of Howard's writing could be considered, you know, racial stereotypes, that kind of thing that would not have been okay uh, later on, but that was a product of his times. And so Elspeth DeTamp took it upon himself to rewrite a lot of those things. And then he wrote his own stories. And then he actively suppressed the original writings so that only his stories and his rewritten stories and his new stories were the ones that were available clear into the 70s. So like the Lancer books, the Ace books, those are all pastiche. They're not the original stories. And unfortunately, that carried over through all of the media. In the 80s, the tour novels were written by various different authors, none of which was the original author. The comic books, Roy Thomas, he did the same thing because he had a deal with the executor, which was Glenn Lord at the time, that he could use the character, but he could not use the original stories. And because of that, he was forced to write pastiche and come up with his own stories. And, and plus, you know, there was only 26 total tales anyway. He would have had to come up with new material to do 275 issues. And so in the 70s, it exploded. It, I mean, it was everywhere. But the only thing that was weird about it is none of it was the original writer. It was all someone else writing about the character, but none of it was the original writing or it was heavily edited and that kind of thing. And unfortunately, that also carried over into the movies. And so like the movie was actually, you know, Roy Thomas did some of the first screenplays for that. He ended up doing the screenplay for Conan the Destroyer, the second movie. A lot of those things that you know as Conan, the fur diaper, came from the comic books. But it's not the way that the character was written. Yeah, so like you say, they're like it's so heavily based on what Marvel was doing with the comic book, even the movies, right? Yeah, the movies are based directly on the comic books. I mean, they're based directly on all of those things that are not related. Here's an example. So in the Conan tales, um, let me read you a little quote here. 
Um, he says, in his roaming about the world, the giant adventurer had picked up a wide smattering of knowledge, particularly including the speaking and reading of many alien tongues. Many a sheltered scholar would have been astonished at the Sumerian's linguistic abilities, for he had experienced many adventures where knowledge of a strange language meant the difference between life and death. Conan spoke 25 different languages. He was a hyper-polyglot multilinguist. He was highly educated, self-educated. He was a warrior. He was a mercenary. He was a thief. He was a wanderer, an adventurer. He was a pirate captain and eventually a king by his own hand. And all we get is this watered down version. And the purists that only like the, the, the original tales, they call every other version the Clonans. <laughs> uh, the, the clones of Conan kind of thing. You go to the library or you go to the bookstore under the Del Rey paperbacks. You can get the original stories unedited, but it wasn't that way. And the Conan Adventurer books that they have here, everybody's excited about this new direction. Conan as a teenager, and the original author purposely stayed away from his youth, never talked about it. This new series only lasts 14 issues. Spoiler alert. Sorry about that, if you didn't know. Yeah, well, it, it, that's what I'm thinking. It's almost like the Star Wars prequels of, uh, of the Conan universe. Well, and here's the thing, though. I, this, reading this article, what fascinated me was I had no idea, like, cause I knew Conan was big in the 70s and that was his era. And then, like, that it trickled through the 80s. I had no idea they were still publishing Conan here in the 90s. I mean, that they were still putting it out there on the shelves as a new comic. And a uh, one little factoid here that I actually uh, found interesting in this article is they talked about how initially Roy Thomas wanted John Buscema to be the artist. He wanted to be the artist too. But Stan Lee decided that it would be too expensive because he didn't really have faith in the book and John Buscema was like their top artist. They had to pay their top rate too. And so he said, well, just give it to this new guy, this Barry Smith. You know, that way if it fails, we haven't lost out on a bunch of money. And of course, Barry Windsor Smith takes all the book, becomes this fan favorite artist. He gets in front of a lot of readers and it becomes a big deal. But then now what they're reporting in Wizard here is that with this new reprint series called called Conan Classic, that they got John Buscema to basically redraw the entire first issue that they're reprinting here, including the cover and everything else. So it's like rewriting history. And yeah. so this is what it would have been. It was like a what if with the artist. And then also, Barry Windsor Smith did uh, issues 1 through 20-ish, 1 through 22, I think. And then Gil Kane did a couple issues. And then John Buscema took over from there. And then he also did a lot of the artwork in like the Savage Tales, the Savage Sword of Conan the Barbarian. And then later on, they had uh, King Conan, and he did a lot of artwork there. So he did get his chance at the, at the story. And it is the iconic Conan from the comic books that you remember. When you see, you know, the, the comic book strip or the, the comic book, it's usually John Buscema. Well, Jeff, thanks for that journey through a land of adventure. We certainly, I think, all know a lot more about Conan than we did before we got on the mic tonight. But now, Stephen, I think you've got something for us. Now it's time for Heroes in Motion.
So the titles of the first 12 episodes of the Fox Spider-Man animated series are announced, including Night of the Lizard and The Menace of Mysterio, as well as details on the new Marvel Action Hour featuring Iron Man and Fantastic Four cartoons. It's revealed that Iron Man will be teamed with the cast of the current Forceworks comic, including Scarlet Witch, Spider-Woman, Sentry, Hawkeye, and War Machine. The Fantastic Four will be everything you'd expect with cameos by Neymar, Doctor Doom, and the Skrulls. I actually like this cartoon a lot of the time. It's actually way better than you remember, I promise. And it's very short run. Like, it's as yeah. in the other shows, it was very short-lived. I, I have worked with the person who voiced Mr. Fantastic a few times. Oh. He's, he's a voiceover artist, and I would purposely hire him because he played Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> and he played Superman on the 1980s Superman cartoon. Is he on oh. Fiverr now, or is he on, like, a cameo? I don't know. Get him to do bumpers for our show. Come on. (laughs) Well, you have to pay him a ton of money. That's why Uh, we guess. I, you know, he was on commercials that I uh, produced. So also Batman, the animated series has released five new episodes, but is holding on to 15 more until the fall. Also mentioned is the mask animated series debuting on CBS as a mid season replacement and the tick, which wizard captioned snarkily. I may be obscure, but I've got a cartoon now. Damn it. And it was a great cartoon. Having less luck in reaching TV on Saturday mornings is Image Comics, with only Jim Lee's Wildcats being picked up by CBS, while Eric Larson's Savage Dragon and Freak Force were rejected. Rob Liefeld is accused of irritating executives by pulling out of negotiations. Liefeld claims the deal went sour because two members of Roustabout, the animation studio that produced the test reel, let greed get the best of them, seeing dollar signs instead of quality animation. The interest in the Youngblood series is at an all-time high, with nearly every animation studio and syndicator lining up to get a chance to work on this property. We'll is be that making... true? <laughs> he believes it. We'll be making an announcement soon to let you know who it's going to be. And you know, we're still waiting, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, everybody wants a piece of a show that never got made. Speaking of greed and crime, a life-size Predator statue valued at five grand was stolen from the Dark Horse headquarters by two crooks who threw it in the back of their 1976 Chrysler Cordoba? Wow, who saw that coming? Police <laughs> re- responded quickly and and caught the criminals, allowing the Predator to return to the safety of Dark Horse later that day. Adam witnessed a similar theft of a cinematic icon. Care to share the details of the great Yoda caper? Uh, yes. Back in the day, I had a friend who liked to get into a little bit of trouble, and he and his buddies one time called into a blockbuster video around the era that the re-release of the Star Wars films, you know, the special editions had been in theaters and were now coming to video, and they were being promoted at blockbuster video stores. They had actual Yoda statues that they were putting in stores, and so there was a Yoda that was, like, chained inside to this thing, and what they did was, right before the store was closing at midnight, they called and they said like yeah do you do you have like the latest don johnson movie like they, they were recording it all on video okay I've, I've seen the video and they're bothering the person can you go look for me so when the person goes in the back the one person on duty one of their buddies like who looks like the unabomber he's just got a hoodie on he runs in with bolt cutters he cuts the chain he grabs the yoda puts it on his back like uh, luke skywalker doing his training on dagobah and just runs down the street and then they catch up with him in the 
van and then they kept it in their apartment for years like i would go over there and they had yoda they would dress him up for holidays like it was crazy so this is a thing that was happening in the 90s don't put out your life-size statues they will be stolen it's funny you say that because it's still happening to this day so there is a place in bayshore new york called blash in the past comics and collectibles and about maybe two months ago they had a life-size stormtrooper thing outside of their shop and two girls walk by on april fool's day and stole it and they got caught on like their ring camera (laughs) and so blast from the past posted it on their instagram and i happened to message them and say hey these girls are wearing the exact same pants the exact same shirt and the exact same face masks i think they work at a restaurant in town whoa and so Two weeks later, they were caught by the police wearing their outfits, and they verified who the girls were, and they had to return the store. You were the whistleblower, Michael. I, oh, my oh, gosh. I caught them. It was so good. So fun. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. And and they, like, messaged me on social media. They were like, dude, thank you for giving us that insight. Nobody thought that. I'm like, they're both wearing bright plaid pants and black shirts and, like, a logo-designed face mask. They clearly work together somewhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> My friend did that with a Mace Windu cardboard cutout during The Phantom Menace. What is it with Star Wars? I don't know. That's crazy. He staked out a supermarket. Like, one day he cased the joint and saw when there was a manager change. Like, and, and, you know, the floor was unattended for, like, a minute. And he just stole the Mace Windu in that minute. And he put it in his opium den where all the druggies in our town hung out. And one day I, he invited me over and I stood at the edge of it and saw every druggie in my town and Mace Windu behind them. Steven, also, why are we friends with criminals? <laughs> there really is an opium den. Look, what is this? Like, you know, 1940s. That's what he referred to it as. He called it the opium den. And I was like very scared to go in. So I just peered inside. I saw Mace Windu. And I was like, oh, there he is. I got to go now. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Oh, boy. Uh, Speaking of people who might have been on opium, though, Stephen. Yeah, so Full Moon Entertainment, Charles Band's production company that created B-movies like Dr. Morgan and Trancers, are now going to begin publishing comics in-house as well. No titles are announced, but they do state that original characters not from their existing movie library will be created. Okay, cool. And good news for Michael, Sam Raimi's Darkman is getting a sequel called The Return of Durant. So there you go. Uh, Which, by the way, it switches because... Initially, Return of Durant was the third movie, they note. And hmm. Die, Dark Man, Die was the second movie, but they switched them upon release. But, but Were they filmed back-to-back or something? Yeah, they were filmed at the same time. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So, And an even better news for me, Mantis, which was produced by Sam Raimi as a TV movie on Fox and written by Sam Hamm, uh, in January 1994, is being turned into a series to debut in August 94. Wizard reports the series has been put into the hands of Bryce Zabel, who will take what he liked from the pilot and shape it into a new show. In other words, forget you ever saw the first pilot. They're not wrong. That's exactly what happened. Basically, the pilot's amazing. It's such a good TV movie pilot. You know, it has a large African-American cast. The director is African-American, Eric LaNouvelle. And then for the series, they completely changed it and changed his costume so it looks really weird. And then all those African-American cast members were replaced by, you know, Caucasian cast members, kind of destroying the whole premise of the pilot. 
Yeah. Big bummer. There's still some fun episodes in the Mantis TV show. But the movie and, was so good. The movie oh, was the really... Like, isn't the Mantis costume... Like, it wasn't it like because he was paralyzed and it, like, gave yep. him the ability to walk? It was just yes. a real, like, way ahead of its time kind of thinking. And I, I thought it was such a great pilot. And I do remember watching some of the episodes and they just weren't the same as that movie. Yeah, and you know what? It's starting to, it's starting to get, like, a little bit of press lately because Carl Lumley was was in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and has and a very he was so role. good. Oh man, he steals he every scene. Part. He, he was the best part of that scene. And so now people are saying, hey, this guy was actually the first African American superhero on a TV series and the series was just changed. And so like it's getting a, a lot of press now and and hopefully the Mantis TV movie gets a new appreciation. All right, Michael, well, we want you to open up the toy chest and take us into Azrael's Action Figure Fury. So, this month, in the Toying Around section, there is a heavy focus on statues and model kits, which is pretty much right up my alley. I mean, come on, I love statues. That's why you're in charge this episode. I guess so. Apparently, statues of Lobo, Sandman, Death, Batman, Wolverine, and Silver Surfer, among others, have been very popular, and now Image is getting in on the game with Eric Larson's Savage Dragon, sculpted by Claiborne Moore, who was discovered by Randy Bowen, which I'm a big Randy Bowen fan, at the 1991 San Diego Comic-Con. Very, very interesting. Moore has also sculpted characters such as Vampirella, Flash Gordon, and Gambit. Next up for the sculptor is Grifter from Jim Lee's Wildcats series. So I, w- I wonder, Michael, for as many of the Randy Bowen statues as you've enjoyed, I think because he was working with Randy Bowen, maybe Claiborne Moore did some of those. So actually, if you look at the bottoms of some of the statues, it'll say who the actual sculptor was. Oh, okay. So I have five on display. I've got Miracle Man, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, Wasp, Spider-Woman, Scarlet Witch, and I have Cable down in the basement. And I don't know who sculpted those, but I could look at some point and I could tell you because yeah, because either cool. some, either on the box or on the bottom on, on the base plate it tells you who the sculptor was. So fun fact if you're a, a collector of statues. A fun bit of trivia. Speaking of fun facts about the Kenner aliens figure line is mentioned. Uh, apparently, the characters of Vasquez. Hudson and O'Malley are shown on the card back, but they were dropped from the line for unknown reasons. Our research shows that these figures were eventually released, but only in the UK. I didn't know that. Yeah, interesting. I'm not a big Aliens fan. I don't remember who any of those characters are, but... Oh, yeah, I had a lot of these figures back in the day, but I I didn't know that I was missing out on Vasquez and the rest, because I just grabbed like three or four. Hudson was Bill Paxton. Now Adam is on his phone right now looking up eBay prices. (laughs) Also included is a release calendar for action figures from May to October of 1994. You know how much I would kill for a release calendar for <laughs> nowadays? Because I'm like, I want to know when these things are going to drop. And like, McFarlane's been doing all the DC stuff now, and they like, everything on his list says, 
TBD. TBD. I'm like, great, thanks. <laughs> Though the list is mainly filled with disappointing announcements of multiple 10-inch X-Men and Spider-Man figures by Toy Biz, we are introduced to a unique idea of X-Men and Spider-Man projectors, which are figures with a working projector in their chest. Do you guys remember these? Do you do you remember seeing these back in the day? Oh. I do, yes. Yeah, I, don't yes. I never There's... had one, but I remember seeing them. Yeah, so like do you ever remember seeing like, you know, like the projectors, like the handheld ones that you could project onto a wall like for kids? Oh yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I had I had a Batman nineteen eighty nine one. Did you really? Yeah. Wow, that's kinda cool. Someone gave it to me for my birthday party in like third or fourth grade. That's pretty neat. Yeah, I was very popular. I got all the good Batman. <laughs> that's cool. Really, the only thing to get excited about is the official announcement of the Rogue figure hitting the pegs in September of 1994 and living on the pegs for probably a long time at KB. What? Rogue? No, she was hard to find, dude. I have oh, her really? in front of me now, but I had to search for her. She was a, a difficult one to track down. All right. Well, that's our Azriel's action figure fury for this month's issue. What's up next? Yeah, this issue uh, of Wizard contains a contest where one lucky reader can win the first three appearances of the Wolverine in issues 180, 181, and 182 of The Incredible Hulk. Now, to enter, you had to identify the six characters that were in panels that had been digitally uh, manipulated to hide their identities. Uh, these were obviously high-priced wall books back in the 90s, and when I got them in the 80s, they were also high-priced. <laughs> but we're going to see how these prices have changed over nearly 30 years. So in 1994, an issue of 180 of The Incredible Hulk was listed for 90 bucks. Issue 181 was valued at 325, and issue 182 was going for around 60. Now in May 2021, an ungraded copy of 180 sold for $3,250. A ungraded copy of 181 sold for $6,611, and 182 of The Incredible Hulk ungraded went for $332. So there's an absolutely insane price jump for the character. You might think I would be suffering from overexposure after all these years. So congratulations to the first appearance of Wolverine. You are more than a fire star. You are the first ever supernova. Oh! <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if you guys saw the pictures here of the contest. They're all blurry and everything, but I'll give it a shot, you know, see if I yeah. could have won it back in the day. You guys will have to tell me if they end up telling the answer in future issues. Yeah, we'll definitely report it. Yeah, but panel one looks, you know, it's obviously Sabretooth. Panel two is Jean Grey in her X-Factor costume. Panel three is Mariko Yashida, who Logan wanted to marry. Panel four... Now, I looked at this for a long time. I really wanted it to be Professor X putting on Cerebro, but it's not. It's actually a sideways picture of Cyber. Cyber would be that uh, Silas Burr character that was introduced in Marvel Comics Presents. Not one of my favorite characters. Really dumb, in fact. Contradicted a lot of things that were in his history. And then also, panel five, when I looked at that, the coloration and everything, I thought, well, that's got to be Ogun, Logan's teacher of ninjutsu from Japan, but it wasn't. The more I look at it, I realize that that is clearly a Jim Lee drawing of Professor Xavier 
wearing a yellow shirt. And you can tell oh. by those you can tell by those eyebrows. I mean the the classic <laughs> Jim Lee Even eyebrows. Even though it's pixelated, yeah. And then uh, the last that's Weapon Alpha, the Vindicator, the Guardian, uh, also known as James McDonald Hudson. And given given how much crap Wizard gives Alpha Flight, I think they just assumed nobody would know who that character was. So like, just basically just show them who it is. And uh... yeah, that wasn't manipulated at all. Uh, the, yeah, just outline. <laughs> But I think I could have taken it. Yes, it sounds like those those copies are yours. If you didn't already have them, you, you could have had doubles. But now we got Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. So uh, Wizard has been poking fun quite often at the two-year delay of Wetworks, which was promised back in 1992 with a Wizard cover story. We're up to two years of a delay on this book, Yes. Now? Oh, my God. Why is it even considered a delay at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where at the time, the details weren't fully released. Nobody knew, like, the sad circumstances of why Wills Portacio, you know, was not able to complete it. So everybody was, like, making fun of it and being angry about it. And then afterwards, it's like, oh, I feel bad. But at this time now... Ads for the book are finally being released and saying in July 1994, and actually the the previous issues as well, they were declaring, quote, three years in the making, a long time coming, but worth the wait, (laughs) as if that was the plan all along, you know. (laughs) But now the word has come down in this issue that Jim Lee has officially purchased the Wetworks characters from Wills Portacio for his Wildstorm Studios imprint. And Lee reportedly gave Portacio, quote, the deal of the century. And Lee is going to make members of the Wetworks team an integral part of the Wildstorm universe history. So a lot of things you hear about in Jim Lee books is Team 7 and all this kind of stuff. And so one of the guys from Wetworks is part of Team 7 and all that. So yeah, Wills Portacio is like, okay, let's give it to Jim. He'll get it out. (laughs) Now, On Todd McFarland's side, his ego column this month is all about intercompany crossovers. He cites the original Spider-Man vs. Superman Treasury Edition comic book from the 70s, as well as the Teen Titans and X-Men crossovers as highlights. Uh, He also acknowledges that events like the previously mentioned JLA Avengers crossover have caused problems between publishers in the past. As it said there, there's a lot of angry feelings about that book not coming together. But also, he seemed to infer that the Valiant Image Deathmate event, which he did not participate in, was another case of, quote, some of them suffered from hitches. <laughs> That's how we put it. Then he goes on to say that it doesn't have to be that way, because the Spawn Batman crossovers were a piece of cake. Oh, it's heavenly for Todd McFarlane. He said that DC left he and Frank Miller alone to do their story, and he didn't bug DC about their interpretation of Spawn. It's just that easy. And uh, the door, he says, is even open to a sequel someday if DC is interested. Todd then suggests other fun crossover ideas like X-Men Wildcats, which actually happens, Supreme and Superman, Supreme, a Rob Liefeld character. So, of course, that did not happen. Uh, Aliens versus the TMNT? I would like to see that. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm surprised Dark Horse didn't put that together. Or if they did, never heard about it. And finally, for you guys, Prime versus Thor. 
<laughs> and you know uh the ultraverse eventually got bought out by marvel marvel bought malibu and prime did meet up with spider-man and became spider prime but he never met thor <laughs> so uh with this issue it's time for us to get to the count we have jim with seven mentions and todd with just four which brings our running total to jim lee 218 mentions todd mcfarlane 206 mm, it's no laughing matter for todd but i think we're ready to get a few yucks in so steven why don't you take us into two rocks top 10 So, the topic is Top 10 Things Overheard at Moon Knight's Funeral. So, with the, just to catch people up on the history here, you, you guys have been talking about Moon Knight and Stephen Platt over and over again in the top 10 lists. We sure have. On the many episodes. But that was the craziest thing, right? He was creating this character, finally getting some buzz because of Stephen Platt, and then they killed him off in the last issue. <laughs> <laughs> Number 10. How did he get his whites so white? Moon Knight's costume, very white, but that would be difficult <laughs> to keep clean. Prime I don't know if they had OxyClean back then. <laughs> <laughs> Number nine. Oh my god, Space Ghost's dead. Space Ghost. Moon Knight? Who's Moon Knight? <laughs> <laughs> Number eight. Doesn't he have a chance at Kazar's record for number one issues now? Hmm, that seems like a deep dive for comics nerds. He must have had many different series they tried to get started that failed. That's what I'm going to assume. I guess so. Number seven. Hooey! What stinks? <laughs> That's not cool. That's not cool at all. Number six. You know, he was maybe the 14th greatest West Coast Avenger. Oh, these are truth. Truth. <laughs> They're all great. They're all great. Uh, number five. I got dibs on his parking space. <laughs> That's cold. That's cold. Number four. Somebody please get Courtney Love out of here. Oh, no. Kurt yeah. Cobain death jokes? That's that's kind of low. Big time. Number three. Anybody want to buy some Moon Knight number 55s cheap? <laughs> Apparently Wizard does because yeah. they constantly talk about it. Number two. Hey, does this mean Marlene's single? I am going to assume that Marlene was Moon Knight's girlfriend, but nobody knows anything about Moon Knight other than his name and costume, so, uh, yeah? Yeah, that's true. I have no idea. Okay, and here we go. Number one, the top ten things overheard at Moon Knight's funeral. Get to the part with the dirt. People got places to be, all right? And they're, wow. And people are eulogizing Moon Knight. They don't got time for that. They, they got to get, they got appointments. Uh, that, is, that is dark. That is cold. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, guys, another episode completed. We can uh, throw the dirt on top of this one. 
until we get to the mini episode. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes. Yeah, so episode thirty-five complete. Jeff, we want to thank you for joining us. If people want to connect with you online, they want to pick your brain. They need to fact check. Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at nlogan77. You can find me over on Retro Days. I wrote a series of articles called uh, Wolverine, A Reader's Perspective, uh, going issue through issue of Wolverine's history and pulling out the facts. Um, if you want to look at Conan, I originally I was a big contributor in the original Conan boards uh, on Conan.com, but they're gone. Uh, but some of those have been preserved by different Conan scholars, you can find those on Swords of uh, Robert E. Howard. It's swords of reh.proboards.com. And you can go to the subsection Amra's Conan Scholarship. I used to go under the handle Amra the Lion, which was a alias for Conan in the stories. And you can look <laughs> up anything from the languages he speaks, all of his paramours, the women he was involved with, what weapons he carried, how he was described in each tale, characters. I pulled out everything, all the all the facts, just same as I did with Wolverine, you know, the monetary units, you name it. And it's all there for you uh, if you want to dive deep into Conan's world. And with that, we want to invite you all to be sure to stay connected with us. So you, do you want to see us on video? Go over to YouTube for Wizards Podcast. Do you want to talk to us on social media? You can find us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. And just to add one more thing here, for those of you who don't listen to everything that comes on the feed, maybe you just listen to the main show, maybe you're not on social media, we just wanted to remind you that our Patreon, yes, Wizards, the Patreon Guide to Comics, unfortunately, we had to uh, close up shop there. We loved bringing all the exclusive videos and podcasts and extra little goodies that we could for those who really wanted kind of the next level experience of the show. Unfortunately, just with Michael and Steven, they're getting back to work in the regular sense, and uh, it really got busy for them to the point where we just realized we weren't going to be able to deliver the way we wanted to. So we really want to just, you know, send a shout out to all those who participated and, you know, who really uh, made it something special. We hope we'll, you'll keep those memories with you. And uh, the good news is, though, for everybody, 90s Super Cinema, the exclusive superhero comic book movie podcast that Michael and Steven are heading up, well, that's coming to the main feed now. That's something that we did want to make time for as special bonus episodes so you will get those as we are able to record them and we're unlocking a few of those episodes from the vault as well so that you can go back and see what you missed and get that full experience so when those pop up on the feed you'll know that's something extra special for you as well as the youtube videos that we made exclusively for patreon they will be coming to our youtube channel so if you're not subscribed there already go ahead and check out wizards podcast on youtube and you'll be ready when something new comes onto the channel and with that we will remind you to keep your books bagged and boarded this has been a presentation of the retro network